This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and sometimes uh, people or your clients or your friends or your family members are wanting to start a business, and they don't really know where to go. They may go on social media and get quote-unquote advice, uh, but to ensure that they don't always have to rely on bad advice, uh, we're going to talk about it today, and to help me is Toby Mathis. Toby, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Brent. It should be fun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is something that you and I see a lot of. Um, I don't know if everybody listening to this will be as familiar with some of the travails of these types of uh, decisions right up front when you're trying to form a business. But to set the stage for people, you want to maybe give us your high level so people know who you are and why you're here. Yeah. So I'm a I'm pretty much a tax attorney. I've been doing this for 25 years. I think it's 25 years. Yeah, 25 years now. Um, specializing just in small business asset protection, uh, tax, ton of tax, and they all go together, and estate planning. Uh, they all kind of are three keys of a cord that if you uh, ignore one, it sounds off, right? So you, yeah. And some people are really good at one key. So you're always trying to, hey, let's even that out a little. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so true. And it's funny you mention all of those together because. I get questions from clients who have businesses and they'll say, you know, do you do you help people with their businesses? I say, well, yeah, of course, because my clients tend to be rich and they have businesses. That's how they make their money. Um, and then they'll say, well, do you think I need to do a trust? That's not even a question. Like that's almost a necessity because there's a human involved. So you have to do estate planning. <laughs> Surprise. Isn't it weird? But I still get pushback. I yeah. still, like all the time I'll have people like, oh, no, probate is easy in my state. And you're mm-hmm. like, well, OK, that's great if you want to shut down the business and have like an interruption. But otherwise, you probably want to have that ironed out. We just give this as real life. We just had a client uh, passed away last week, last Friday. He was hit on a on his motorcycle by a drunk driver. And, you know, here it is, a construction company. He worked with his uh, spouse. They were newly married, married for 104 days total. And the, you know, we had tightened it up pretty quick, had his trust before he was married, trust after he was married. But that would have been just about, just think of that situation. Before they were married, with no estate plan, no trust, no document, how does that business carry on? Does the at the time, fiance have any rights at all to the business? You know, she was working in the business for several years. What would have occurred? And then you look at it and say, even in this circumstance, how do they continue on? And it was a licensed business. So like you have to have a mm. principal or somebody that has carries a certain type of licensing. And uh, just how difficult that is when you don't have a written plan. And I always am shocked that people kind of just do the, well, I did a will. Right. got it on legal doom or something like that i make right. fun of you know hey i i you know my, my brother ned has this guy and he does wills for 99 dollars. so i did one of those you're like okay that's great not gonna yeah. do anything for you but mm, good yeah i mean i i yeah i i have i have similar frustrations and i try to even it out with uh empathy for people because i think you know when you start talking about trusts even among lawyers and accountants and financial advisors 
a huge portion of those people, let alone say regular people, yep. uh, they don't even understand trust. So when you start talking about trust, it's like you're you might as well be talking about fantasy land. Yeah, and it's so. I mean, I always think of them as really simple. Hey, it's a contract. Yeah. And because you have this contract, you don't need a judge to tell you who gets it. And if you don't need a judge, it means you don't have to go to court. And if you don't have to go to court, that's a good thing. Courts yeah, are where right. all those lawyers <laughs> hang out. <laughs> no to the lawyers. Real lawyers, Toby. Real lawyers, not not yeah. weird lawyers like us. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I, I look at myself as kind of an anti-lawyer because I'm like the last place I ever want to go is a courthouse. Like, let's just never go there. (laughs) I don't want you to go there as a defendant. I don't want you to go there as a plaintiff. And I definitely don't want your family to have to go there if if you pass away. I'd just assume avoid it. So a little written agreement that says, hey, we don't want to go to court. That's really all it is. It's fairly simple. And if you want to create a legacy, it's the only option. Like the, I guess you could do foundations and you could create your legacy that way, but you're always going to die with something. You may as well have a written plan for it and not just a die and distribute like a will does. It's like, right. hey, let's actually think about it and create something. Uh, I always tell clients, hey, think 200 years in the future. What kind of values do you want to pass down? What does that estate look like? And they look at you funny and you go, no, no, seriously, you're you're a human being. You're you're creating this thing. You know, you you started your business. What does it look like in 200 years? And it's kind of funny. You give them permission to actually future trip a little. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I kind of teed this up as um, creating businesses and we've gone straight to the very, very top of the organizational (laughs) chart at the human (laughs) level. But I think actually that's probably the right place to start because, you know, what you're describing would be something where the business or the assets would would end up in. Yeah. What we, what we might call an irrevocable trust. We might say a dynasty trust, or if you Googled it, you might find dynasty trust or whatever. It doesn't really matter what name you give it. And I have clients, sometimes when I we sort of are talking about this concept, they'll say something like, yeah, but, you know, I just want to give it to my kids because they're they're responsible and they can handle things. And I'm sure you hear that too. And I'm curious to hear, I hear that how do you time. respond to that? Uh, I always say that's great, but uh, you know your kids might be absolutely fantastic, but we don't know what their life circumstances are going to be in 10, 10 years. We don't know in 10 days. Uh, so we probably shouldn't just hand them something that they may not be in a position to handle at the time. Uh, and again, when nobody has a crystal ball, and what happens if something happens to the child before you? You know, are you are you landing this on a grandchild's lap? And then we don't know who that person is. We've seen people harm themselves irrevocably, since you use that term, uh, by getting uh, an asset that they weren't prepared for. I, I had a guy uh, early on, he said, hey, Toby, uh, hold this coffee. You know, he gave me a cup of coffee. He goes, is that heavy? And I said, no. And he goes, now put it at the end of your arm and put your arm straight out in front of you. And uh, I'm going to come back in five minutes and ask you the same question. And I go, well, okay. And it's getting really heavy. Like my arm, I like, can I put it down? And he goes, no, I, that's the point. It wasn't heavy, was it? It seemed like it was not that big of an issue. And then you put it out there and you hold on to it for a little while and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And eventually you just have to put it down. And that's kind of the way uh, he said, that's that's money. He goes, it, it needs a place to go. You need a place to put it. And if you don't have something solid to put it on, it's, you know, somebody's going to walk up and you're going to hand it to them because you're just, you don't know what else to do. And I think we see that with lottery winners or people that get newfound wealth and they usually have a few bruises and you just got to decide, hey, do I want to do that to somebody or yeah. do I want to say, hey, you know what? Uh, I, I have a really cool one of my favorite ones was these this couple that I was working with and they love to travel. And they said, you know what? Everybody I know that travels internationally is pretty cool. Like they, they end up getting a worldly view. They're not just 
you know, pounding their chest about this country, that country or whatever, but they tend to be nicer people. And they wanted to create a trust that allowed their descendants to all travel internationally at least once a year. And that was it. And I was like, hey, that would be pretty cool if grandma and grandpa had set up a trust that said, hey, Toby uh, or, you know, any of my brothers, et cetera. Hey, you guys can leave the country. I'll pay for it. You want to go to Paris? Here you go. You know, seven days, 14 days, talk to the trustee, you know. Uh, and I always think of that situation where I'm like, that would be really cool. I would have really yeah. liked to have somebody done that for me. And uh, and I can't help but think, yeah, you could do really neat things with your estate. Or if you love mission work, hey, I want you to travel and be able to go do mission work or fill in the blank. I want you to be able to go to college. It's really important that everybody goes to college. It's when you create these things and actually give them a purpose, people will remember you, you know, and it's not that we're doing it for vanity, but if you want your grandkids to know your name, your great grandkids, your great, great grandkids, people that come after you, it's kind of, you got to put, here's my values. Here's what I thought was important and create a vehicle for it. And when you start at that point, then it's, it makes our life a lot easier when we're deciding what type of business structure we're going to put in place yeah. and, uh, and, and and why we're doing what we're doing in the first place. Like, what's our purpose? Right. Yeah. No, it's really well sit, said. And, you know, it just sort of turns out that if you want to, we'll say control, that's probably a little too strong a term, but control things after you die, there's really only one legal mechanism to do it. And it's a trust. The trust just owns stuff, but it can you can put your values into the trust and then it exists beyond your life. Everything else terminates when you die. I would say that and a, a nonprofit. Yeah, either that's an true. operating a, a private operating or a just a private foundation. Even if you just yeah. want to be, hey, I just want to give money away to these organizations. That's great. But if you actually set one up. Like I always crack up that Ikea is a charity, you know, I'm like, Ikea, <laughs> yeah. like it's like the most, the furniture that's, that's, that's made into a puzzle so that it can frustrate you, right? But it's, it's actually a charitable organization. And I always use that as an example. It's like, you can create something that's important to you that will never die if you mm-hmm. fund it right. You know, we mm-hmm. can go back to, there's a great case of Milton Hershey who set up the Milton Hershey school. It's still educating people. I think he set it up in 1905. He didn't have any kids. He and his wife died uh, childless. And it was there to help uh, orphan boys learn agriculture. Now it's morphed into this the, the Milton Hershey School. And uh, over 100 years later, the thing has so much funding. I think it's got $12.6 billion in it because it doesn't pay tax. And it just keeps educating these kids. And I think it's 2,000 kids a year that go through that. And I always think, it's like, I wonder if Milton was actually thinking that. When he set it up, it's like, oh, in 100 years, this is going to be like a really good school. I'm sure he was just like, hey, there's a little problem. Uh, like, we want to help society out. And mm-hmm. we don't want these kids to end up being a blight to society. We want to be productive members. So here's my little part. And you create something that's so small in the beginning, and then it ends up being this big thing in the end. And I always look at your your options as being, hey, I can do that. You could do that with a trust. Yeah can do that with uh with a nonprofit but you, what you can't do that with is you own it all and then you die and give it to somebody right right yeah it's such a good point yeah I, you know it's curious because i i think about that a lot on the nonprofit side where you know how uh you know a lot of financial advisors and and sort of supposed gurus they'll sort of be talking about uh you know compounding interest you know how much money you mm-hmm. could accumulate and we you know we run those sorts of projections and trust too but it's rare that I hear somebody say, and just imagine with with even just a, a n- small, relatively small 
investment on the charitable side, how big that can get and how much of an impact that can have down the road. And I think you're probably right. Most people that that do it initially are not thinking that, well, if this thing is properly managed, it could grow into something massive and really have a huge impact. But that's the reality. I mean, if it's properly managed, it can. It will just continue. Like, that's why you look at Harvard and these big institutions mm-hmm. and they kind of joke, you know, it's an institution tied to an endowment, right? The endowment's getting so massive, they can't even get away from the snowball effect. <laughs> yeah. Yep, Very interesting. Those, those are nonprofits. Those are just 501c3s that are educational institutions. Um, and guess what? You can make one, too. <laughs> it's not that hard. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you set one up. And this is the this is the part that always gets me. I don't know whether you ever encounter this, but you'll have somebody come in your office and they said, I talked to an attorney and I was going to do an estate plan. And they said, trust her for rich people that I didn't have enough assets. And I always think of uh, if you called up ADT or like some company saying, I want an alarm system for my house. And they walked into your house and they looked around your house and they said, you don't need an alarm system. In fact, you should probably leave your door open. Maybe somebody will steal some of that crappy furniture you got. <laughs> you know, They would never do that. They would just say, hey, here's something that might be appropriate. In our profession, they'll literally just say, no, that's not for you. And I look at it going, wait a second. If I insure somebody, I could buy really cheap term insurance and I could create a vehicle, very simple, so that if they pass away, that it's funded with that money. And now you have a substantial asset for future generations or whatever, even for organizations that you care about. You know, maybe you like dogs or cats, you know, it, it could still be going to that. You could create a private foundation and fund it with a term policy. Yes. And then, hey, we're going to give away money every year to my favorite, you know, my, my my favorite cat organization. Right. You could you could do that. That's it's not difficult. But they just immediately say, oh, yeah, 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 this is for people that are worth more than five million. And I'm like, where's that written? Yeah. 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 Probate, sucks. probate is horrible for, for poor people. Probate is horrible for rich people. I just think probate's pretty horrible. And, you know, and the attorney might say, well, this isn't so bad. But uh, I think it just forces people to act in their worst behavior on their worst day. And the, the outcome is quite often catastrophic for the family emotionally. I usually get fights over plates and like that. And you just want to minimize that. So just put a little thought to it. Let's not leave these people to to that situation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I kind of feel if I'm sort of being more philosophical about it from a professional standpoint, you know, as a, as a lawyer, very technically, you're an officer of the court and you mm-hmm. are supposed to act in the best interests of the court and justice, et cetera. Which of course, I believe in all of that stuff. I'm not trying to diminish it. Mm-hmm. But if that's true, and I know that simply by setting up a pretty straightforward, doesn't have to be complicated, but a pretty straightforward structure. I can Mm -hmm. eliminate something that's going to end up on the court's docket in the future. And the court has plenty of things to do. It's not like they're hurting for cases. 100%. Why would I not do that? Isn't it sort of my professional duty to help the court out and eliminate things off of its docket that are unnecessary? Because I was taught to do wills and then they'll contact me when they die yeah. and I will probate it. And then when if I sell my practice, I'm selling all these, you know, these files that I created over my life. No, I, my, one of my partners, uh, his his grandfather was a probate attorney and that was the asset that he sold. Mm. And so when he came to he was he was talking to his Clint and he was talking to him saying, hey, you need to do this. And we just it, since the very beginning, we kind of looked. Yeah. Knowing what we know just a little bit when we were brand new lawyers, you're looking at it going, I, I, I think it's better if people don't go through a court process when they're grieving. Just logically thinking, you probably want to minimize big things from happening 
while people are in a bad space, you know, right. like it's like let's let's see if we can't minimize it. And oh, there's a convenient thing that eliminates it, and it's pretty cheap. It's a lot yeah. cheaper than the actual pro, probate costs. And I come from right. a family where we had assets in a state from my grandmother that it was too expensive to like it was just some lots in Alabama, and it was we just let them go, let them go to the state because it was they weren't worth much. And the attorney wanted more than the than the lot. So I remember that as a young young person. And I was like, mm. oh, that kind of sucks. I don't think mm. grandma really wanted those lots to go to the state. But OK, because again, it was a it was a remote probate in a jurisdiction where nobody lived. So the cost of probating it was going to be more than the lots were worth. So okay, we'll just let them go back to the state. That, again, I just look at it going, boy, it's so easy to avoid that situation. I'm sure you're looking at it going. Yeah. Why did she do that? The trust would have been really easy, would have avoided it very simply, would have been a lot less expensive than a plane ticket. Why, you know, why didn't we just do that? And now I have that same question. So. Yeah, uh, I, I will. I, I know these family type questions because the, clo- the closer somebody gets to you familially, the less they listen to you. So I, uh, <laughs> I understand how that works. Um, <laughs> well, to keep our promise here, um, let's talk a little bit about kind of entity selection. I think we've we've probably clarified for people that at the very top of the structure really needs to be a trust for a whole host of reasons. Yes. You should think about that strongly. So when people are trying to pick entities, you know, oftentimes they're one, they're confused because nobody understands the difference between an LLC and an LP and an LLLP and an LLLP and a corporation. So you know, help us walk through that just a little bit. If you were if you had somebody who said, I got this great idea, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a big business. We've got we got some traction now. We need to formalize it. What, what should I do? What would you tell that person? Uh, I would I would say hey, we got to sit down and actually chat about what you, what's your exit going to be like. Hey, is this something where I'm creating and I got something that's going to be worth something and I'm going to sell it because then you have to worry about 1202 stock. Uh, is this something where I want to depreciate and I'm going to have a bunch of expenses in the beginning and I and I, I you know my spouse has you know a lot of income and I want to offset that income with losses. You know, I I would try to get to know a little bit about the situation and say that at a minimum, you need a box around that business. I always say, like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, in the business, you could let's say you discriminate against an employee and they sue the hell out of you. Right. That's the worst thing that could happen. Or you you're a plumber and you flood somebody's house and you don't have an adequate insurance and they come after you. So let's put a box around that. Let's just try to isolate that liability. And then also you look at your business and say, hey, I build a business. What's the worst that could happen if I did something like, let's say I get into a car accident or better yet, let's say one of your kids gets into a car accident and they come after your business. How can I isolate the business for me and me from the business? And that leads us to really simply, we need a some sort of limited liability entity. So that net narrows our focus really to LL, you know, to LLCs, LPs, corporations. And realistically, we're talking LLCs and corps for the for the vast majority. You know, you look at licensing. Are there any restrictions depending on what type of license they have? And then you look at it and say, hey, all right, we can isolate the liability. Now let's look at taxes. And from a tax standpoint, there's two different worlds. There's the, hey, I'm a sole proprietor and I enjoy paying world because sole proprietors get audited, what, 800 percent to 16. I think the last time I saw it was table 17B on publication 55 is this IRS data book. The last time they published it, I think it was in 2020. And it is, when if you're, you have a client who's making $100,000 a year, quite literally the audit rate is about 1600% higher if they're a sole proprietor and they lose 94 to 95% of the time. So I'm like, 
hey, you know what? Let's not get nailed by the government. So let's not be that. And all of a sudden we're limited to an LLC taxed as an S corp, an LLC taxed as a C corp, or just your traditional S corp or C corp. And then we just look at, uh, hey, do we, you know, might we have losses? Is this risky? Do we want them on our individual return or do we want to leave them in the company? You know, is this thing going to be something that could be worth something someday? I just had a client who exited a very lucrative company and had, you know, the zero capital gains under the 1202 and saved himself uh, quite literally about two million bucks because there was no capital gains on it. You know, so you ask those little questions and you come to a very like usually it's two taxable entities that you're really looking at S and C corps. And whether that can be an LLC or just whether it needs to be properly a a, a, a corporation. Yeah, I, I love all of that, and I think you're you're exactly right that the starting place is actually the ending, and yep. then you work backwards. Um, and so people, so so many people, I think gets they get hung up on where to begin, and they don't spend enough time thinking about where am I going to end. And uh, the, the the beautiful thing is on any of those, it's not you. You could mm-hmm. die. And somebody else walks right into your shoes and continues to operate the business. You're the sole proprietor. I'm sorry. That thing's toast. It's not going to yeah. make it yeah. died with you. Right. And so I'm always kind of shocked that I think it's 70 percent. Last time I saw 70 percent of new businesses are still sole proprietors. I think it's because accountants say it's easier and and corporations are more formal. And I look at it and go, hey, the IRS doesn't distinguish. They just say a business. You have to keep books and records. Nobody ever says Oh, but you have to keep extra records if you're an S corp or a C corp. Right. If you're an LLC, boy, you have to even keep more records. And there's nothing that says LLCs don't have formalities. They always say, oh, the formalities of an S or a C corp are more than an LLC. Not really. They're pretty much the same. Well, the taxes are more complicated. And I put up a Schedule C, a sole proprietorship return versus an S corp return. And I'm like, no, actually, they're pretty much identical. So what else do you got? Yeah. You know, and then by the way, if you structure it as a corp, you're probably going to pay a lot less tax. You're going to have something called an accountable plan that's available to you. You're going to be like if you're an S corp and you make 100 grand a year as a sole proprietor, you're going to probably save somewhere around $10,000 a year on self-employment tax. If you do it Mm -hmm. right, Uh, you're going to have instead of having to do this horrible home office, you know, depreciation recapture nonsense. I can just do a reimbursement for an administra- administrative office in the home and I can I don't have to report it anywhere. Like there's just so many other little benefits. And I'm still I just I, I scratch my head as to why so many people are still sole proprietors. Maybe uh, maybe I'm weird, but I just look at it going, why would you do that to yourself? You're pretty much it's not going to be pleasant if any any of these things happen. And by the way, at least one of them is 100 percent likelihood. Right. You're going to pass yeah. away. That's yeah. not going to make it. You're just building something on. It's like you're building it on uh, on on sand or you're, you're building it on thin ice. Eventually, it's going to sink. Why would you do that? Yeah, it's a it's a strange phenomenon. I agree. And I think the <laughs> anybody who has has worked with Schedule C would probably <laughs> agree that Schedule C is actually less organized than the S Corp return or the C Corp return. I mean, they, they just are. And they're messy. You look through them and they don't make a lot of sense. It's just why they get audited all the time. And they lose. And you lose. because 5% of the time. Like you just look at it and go, why do they lose so much? It's because some accountant told them, 
oh, the formalities aren't as bad. So the guy says, oh, great. I don't have to keep records. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, I think you're right. It it, lure, it uh, lures people into a false sense of complacency because they feel like, well, I'm just a sole proprietor. I'm just Schedule C, so I don't need all this backup. And guess what the IRS cares about? All the backup. That's all they care about. You know what? I I used to clerk for a judge and she said it's the interpretation of the presentation. She'd always say that to me. It's the interpretation of the presentation. So make sure you're presenting it right. And so the IRS wants it to look ABC, right? And you walk in there and you're sole proprietor and you just give them the whole alphabet all on a big plate because, hey, I don't have to organize that. And they're like, but we want to see ABC. Well, it's in there. My accountant said I didn't have to separate it out. Okay, you lose. Next. Yeah. And I, and I always, you know, I think of that kind of stuff because, you know, I respect people and it sticks in your head. But I can't help but saying all we want to do is make the business look the way the IRS wants to see it. And they tell us exactly how they want to see it because they do these beautiful audit guides and stuff. And you can see exactly what they want to see. And I don't know. It's like it doesn't say only if it's a sole proprietor, you don't have to do this. I never saw that in anywhere. Right. It doesn't exist. They always say if you're a business, here's what we need to see. I don't care whether right. it's an S-Corp, C-Corp, LLC, taxes, an S-Corp, LP, LLP, LLP. It doesn't matter. You still have to do those those basic who, what, where, when, and why. You still have to have some records. And right. it's, it's such a benefit to you to learn how to do it right. Like, I don't know how you run a business if you don't have some idea what your numbers are. It, it tends to be challenging or, <laughs> or less, uh, less filled with successes. How about that? Uh, it, at least in my experience. I don't know about yours, but... There's a there's an interesting other phenomenon that I do that I do see from time to time where, you know, the particularly in the real estate industry, which I think you're in Vegas, so there's, you know, there's heavy real estate economy oh, there, heavy real estate economy here where the, there's this debate about like, well, should we be a partnership versus, say, an S corp? And it's like, well, that's a false dichotomy to begin with, because yeah. you're talking about completely different sides of your business and one will serve one side and the other will not. So you. You know, but it's just I think people have a hard time conceptualizing that their business itself could have separate components to it where one structure for one component will be extremely advantageous and a different structure for a different component will be equally advantageous. You know what you what you're saying? We we just saw this with a residential assisted living and they had an S corp. They had the residential assisted living uh, operating business inside it as well as their building. And it was in California and it had appreciated significantly. And so they have the question, how do I get the real estate out of the (laughs) S-Corp? And I'm like, well, it's going to be a taxable event. You know, it's a sale and liquidation. No, my accountant never said that. Whoops. Yeah, they probably didn't. How about this? Did nobody ever told you don't own real estate in a corporation? No, I've never heard that. Okay, well, now you're going to hear it. And this is why you're going to live it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just uh, it's, it's a little bit frustrating when you see those and well-intended people. And they were trying to sell one side of the business, you know, the operating business. And they were trying to figure out how they could sell the whole business and keep the real estate. Like, oh, my God, this person, because they had bad advice in the very beginning, mm-hmm. built this whole thing on a false premise. And they're going to have a negative consequence. Like they, they'll yeah. they'll survive, but it'll be a it'll still be a, a an ouch, be a, a little bit of a tax. hit. Right. And there are, you know, if you're trying to comp service providers, you know, sometimes it's better to have a partnership versus uh, a corporation, depending on how fancy you want to be with things. But it gets to your it gets to your point initially, which is the great point, which is where do you want to end up? And, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have to be able to see the whole road and then build backwards. And one other thing that you mentioned um, 
I just want to chat about here just for a second before we we drop off is um, you mentioned 1202 a couple of times. 1202 is qualified small business stock for anybody who doesn't read the Internal Revenue Code. And the qualified small business stock, among other things, um, has to be a quote unquote domestic C corporation. So it can't be yes. a corporation from Canada, for example. Sorry, Canadians. Um, but the, the advice I think that most people get is, oh, no, you would never want a C corporation. Of course, that's false. That you just hit the nail on the head. We still are heavy on C corps in our in my in my company, and we get a lot of heat from accountants. Well, it's double tax. It's this, it's that. I'm like, well, actually, you can write off the fifty thousand uh, dollar loss if it, if it's not successful. This is a startup, you know, blah blah blah. We control a lot of the income into it, but also there might be value here. We might be selling it. They still don't get it. They always repeat the mantra, "It's double tax." And I said, so what? So what if it's double tax? You know, yeah. a you're in control of that. I've never seen anybody pay a double tax that didn't want to pay the double. Right, just, right. They could retain it. There's a million reasons why you could retain it. Um, but also when you crunch the numbers, it's not that bad. You're going to have, you know, sometimes it's zero tax on the dividend. So you paid 21%, big whoop. Right. Uh, you know, I, but again, it's, 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 it's that little get your pencil out and crunch the numbers. And a lot of times people have a knee-jerk reaction to things. No, C-Corps are bad. Or S-Corps, so they're more complicated. Hey, we should always be a sole proprietor. And I just say, people, do better. Dig into it, understand it a little bit more, because it's not right. just, like, there's the asset protection side. There's the, how will the bank treat it? How will a court treat it? How will a, you know, a lender treat it? How will an angel treat it? You know, if you have somebody that's going to be about, they're going to want to see it in a particular way. And then we look at the IRS and say, and how does, how is it going to be taxed? So mm -hmm. set it up with the state. What is that going to look like? Well, who are you dealing with? Are you, you, you mentioned something and I don't want to go too long, but in real estate, for example, we can get most people to zero. Like if, if we want to wipe out your income and you're, you're, you're significantly involved in real estate, you could do that. But it's really tough to get loans when you have, when you show no income. And so you're having a conversation with people that are like, I want to pay no tax. I'm like, but you need to show how much income to qualify for loans to continue to buy your real estate. Uh -huh. They go to the mortgage guy and the mortgage guy says, you need to show a hundred thousand or whatever the number is. And they come back and they go, well, I have to show this much income. And I'm like, I thought you wanted to be zero. Right. You know, yeah. It's like, you better figure out what it is you're trying to accomplish and who you're going to be interacting with before you just make a knee jerk reaction and go, you know, this entity, this, this is the best. I saw this on TV, right. you know? Right. Right. Uh, that's such a, <laughs> that's a very, that's a long very interesting behavioral psychological uh, conversation that we'll have to have another day. But yes, is the answer to that all the time. <laughs> um, Toby, I'm so glad that we could do this. Uh, if people are trying to connect with you, what is the best way for them to connect with you? I uh, just type in my name in the internet, Toby Mathis. I have a, a, I'm on YouTube all over the place. You can actually go to tobymathis.com. I work with Anderson uh, Business Advisors. You can go to andersonadvisors.com, but it's actually just simple. Type in my name, you'll find me. Yep. The internet knows that you exist. That's it, the, it, the perfect it, it, place. We like the internet. It's a great place to share information. It doesn't exist in a boring old dusty book in somebody's basement anymore. You can get the information with a couple clicks. Pretty nice. Yep. Well, Toby, as I say, thank you very much. I'm humbled you could spend some time with me. Thanks. Hey, anytime. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.